Let's open the Scriptures this morning to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, as we continue our series of sermons on the opening chapters of the Bible. It's very instructive to note that there are a number of parallels between the opening chapters of Genesis and the closing chapters of Revelation. There are things about the beginning that God designed to be paralleled in the end, and we're going to see some of those things this morning. We'll read Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8, and then from 22, or at verse 22, the last part of the chapter, into chapter 22, verse 6. So beginning at Revelation 21, verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also He said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We go to verse 22, same chapter. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, 
and night will be no more. There will, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I invite you to turn with me in Scripture to Genesis 2. In the Pew Bible, that's page 2. We'll be focusing in the preaching on the verses 4 through 14 of chapter 2. Verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in, the east, in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. That's as far as we'll go with our text. In response uh, to the preaching, we'll sing about God's covenant with us, with people, His people, in Psalm 25 the verses 5 and 6. Well, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we move uh, this morning into Genesis chapter 2, it's helpful to keep in mind the nature of the book of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. The very name Genesis, taken from a Greek word which means birth or generation, and it points to the start of life, the, the start of new things. And in the Hebrew original, the very first word of this book, the first word of the whole Bible is the word beginning. In Hebrew, it's one word, in the beginning. So. The book of Genesis records the beginning, 
And it also records a series of further beginnings. It's, it's a book that's concerned with the origins of things as we know them still today. And what we've been seeing so far in Genesis 1 up till 2 verse 3 is a, a sweeping overview of the beginning of all of creation from, from A to Z, you might say. In fact, it's a, a fairly a short, factual account. Moses uses that to tell us how God created the heavens and the earth and everything within them. But now in our text, 2 verse 4 and following, the inspired author, he, he narrows his focus to describe a more particular beginning, the beginning of humanity. A lot of people get confused when they read chapter 1 and then just keep reading into chapter 2, confused, sometimes frustrated, because it seems as if the author begins to contradict himself from what he said in chapter 1. It can seem at first like chapter 2 is a second account of the origins of the world, but really when you examine it carefully, what we have here is an account of the origins of man. It's not rehashing all the things that were done in the first six days of creation, but it's rather like taking a microscope to day number six, and particularly to the moment when man was created. It's really about how man was formed, where man was placed, what man was charged with what opportunities and resources and materials he was given to work with, and then toward the end of the chapter, who man received as helper. And so God in our text reveals some, some very basic and, and vital things about humanity, about us, about us and our relationship with our Maker. And so I proclaim to you this word of the Lord God covenants with man in the Garden of Eden. We'll see that this is the Garden of Delight, and it is also the Covenant of Delight. What throws some people off uh, at first is the opening words of verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That on its own might lead you to expect uh, another version of or at least more information on the, the six-day creation week. And yet there's something very particular about the wording here. That word generations can be translated as descendants. And when you look further through the book of Genesis, you discover that it is a phrase that is used more often, at least ten times to describe the, the beginning of the historical account of a particular man and his family line. For example, in Genesis 5, we have the same phrase, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And later in Genesis, you can find the same phrasing regarding Noah and Isaac and Jacob and a number of others. What follows then is the genealogy of Adam in chapter 5, a genealogy of Noah and the account of Noah's family line and Isaac's line and others. 
So that word generation has to do with what is produced by the, the person at the head of that story, of that, of that account. And here we've got the generations of the heavens and the earth. What was produced, what was generated by the earth. And then you can understand how the creation of man is the focus of this. For verse 7 tells us, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So very literally, by the power of God, man comes forth from the earth. We are generated from the soil. Just like later, God, by God's power, children will be born to Adam, so by God's might, Adam, as you could say, Adam is born of the earth. You and I truly are earthlings. I wonder if we reflect on that sufficiently, that you and I have our physical origins in the dust of the earth. Our bodies are nothing more than particles of soil that have been fused together by God's incomprehensible wisdom. As God will later say, from dust we were taken, to dust we shall return. I mean, you check in any grave after a period of time, and all you'll find less left of the individual is dust. That's kind of humbling, isn't it? I mean, you and I are often complaining about the dust. Probably a bunch of us were busy dusting our houses the last couple of days. Maybe some of us wash the dust off our car. We, we don't really like dust. Dust is something we avoid. It's something we get rid of. And yet, ironically, how often do we think of ourselves being of the dust? We tend to go in the opposite direction, I think, thinking of ourselves rather highly. To see ourselves as just a little better looking than that girl a little handier than the next guy, a little smarter, a little savvier, a little, a little more put together than the next person. It's very easy for us to be filled with pride at our accomplishments or standing in the community, at the strength of our bodies or at the work that we do. We can very quickly look down on others, on their lesser abilities. But brothers and sisters, let's not kid ourselves. At the end of the day, you and I are living dust. We can sing it in Psalm 103, Book of Praise, stanza 4. For well the Lord knows how we were formed and fashioned. The Lord remembers that we are only dust. God remembers that about us. Do we remember that about ourselves? For it's only then that we can understand God's tremendous grace and kindness in raising us up from the dust. We have that recorded in our text. And notice how, how much care the Lord takes in creating or, or making man here. With most creatures and with all the rest of creation, God just speaks a word, right? 
He spoke, and the heavens and the earth came into existence. He spoke, and the waters were separated. God spoke, and things happened. But here, the Lord, as it were, slows it down, and He takes His time. It's kind of the picture of a potter working with clay, forming and fashioning the mud into just the right shape, into the exact vessel that the Lord wanted to make. Only the Lord is not just forming the dirt and the dust, but we read, he goes further, verse 7, he breathed into the nostrils, his nostrils, the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You see the miracle in that? God took soil, which has no life in it, dust, earth, and he animated it. He infused it with something of Himself, with, with the breath of life. Isn't that, isn't that marvelous? You know, scientists still today, they can't figure it out. How to make life, how to create life. Oh, scientists can manipulate the conditions. They can put cells together, the right cells, in, at the right time and with the right conditions. And then under those conditions, at times, life will reproduce, but they cannot force, they cannot compel, they cannot ignite the process. They can only create the conditions. Scientists cannot make new life out of something that has no life. And the reason they can't, brothers and sisters, is because man's life comes directly from the breath of God. God brought life, human life, into existence by His own Spirit. And since no man can create God or can control God, no man will ever be able to hold the power to create human life. And because the Creator did this, because it is Almighty God who came down and fashioned man from the dust and breathed into him life, that is what makes man precious, valuable. It's really important to understand this because if you talk to people that don't believe in God and go to the psychology of unbelievers, they talk a lot about having self-esteem. There are lots of folks in our world that suffer from low self-esteem. They don't think much of themselves. They, they're down on themselves. And the psychologist's answer for that is, well, you have to learn to think better of yourself. You have to think more highly of yourself. You have to gain self-esteem. Take pride in who you are, what you are. Don't let people criticize you. You are something because of the fact that you are, you are who you are. So you should consider yourself important. You should consider yourself valuable. But brothers and sisters, self-esteem is really an illusion, isn't it? For what walking pile of dust has any right to esteem itself? But when you know the Creator when you know that the Creator of all the heavens and the earth took time to shape 
that first pile of dust into a person and breathe life into it, when you understand that this God created you and me in the wombs of our mothers, and He did so in His own image as His viceroy, then you realize that it is God who gives to mankind, both male and female, a preciousness that nobody can take away. Don't go in for self-esteem, but go in for God-esteem, and from there you will find your own value. Esteem the God who made you. Esteem the God who invested in you, who gave His Son to die for you, who still today cares for you, and then you'll see that in the eyes of this God, you are like a sparkling jewel to Him. He loves you. Your worth comes out of God's great love for you. We see that love and compare and care rather coming out in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Notice that it was God who planted the garden. It wasn't the angels. He didn't commission angels to do that. Nor was man given garden building or landscaping as his first task. But the Lord was the first landscaper. The, the Lord lovingly planted it and prepared this garden himself, and then he placed man into the garden, the garden he calls Eden, literally the garden of delight. Now, when we think garden, we might think vegetable garden, but that's not really what the Lord has in mind here. This garden is much more like an arboretum, a big park. It would be something like bush gardens or the Royal Botanical Gardens, where you have over multiple acres of land, many varieties of fruit trees and shade trees and shrubs and flowers and meadows and pathways. This kind of garden park was common for kings in the ancient world to, to build or have constructed beside their palaces so that they could stroll out from their palace and walk in their garden parks. You can think of King Nebuchadnezzar and his faming hanging, famous hanging gardens of Babylon. Some of the wealthier kings, they would even import exotic plants and exotic animals, and they would literally have their own zoo in their garden. So here, the Israelites would have been familiar with that scene. So the the supreme king of, of all creation, the Lord God, he makes this delightful garden park stocked with all sorts of trees and shrubs and flowers, animals freely roaming, animals of all kinds roaming about in harmony and peace, and there he places the man and instructs him to till it and keep it. And I'd like you to notice how the garden is described in verse 9 of our text. And out of the ground, and the Lord God planted, no, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Good for food, that means God liberally supplied Adam, and then later when Eve joined him, 
He supplied his children with all the food that they needed, but there's more here. The Holy Spirit says these trees, they were pleasant to the sight. They were beautiful to behold. They don't They didn't just have practical value, these shrubs or these trees, but by God's design, they had beauty. And I wonder if we give enough attention to to beauty and to art. I think sometimes that aesthetics or beauty is something we tend to play down. We might think it frivolous, we might think it without purpose, we might even think it's worldly. We're practical people. We are hardworking, a people known for efficiency, for skill, for getting the job done, but we're less known for works of art, striking designs, and making things pleasing to the eye. And yet, brothers and sisters, that's all part and parcel of God's creation. We tend to think of the Proverbs later in Scripture, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. And we certainly know that in this fallen world, such things as beauty can become a god in themselves. It's good to be aware of that. But are we equally aware, do we equally keep in mind that when it's dedicated to God's glory, When it is done for His purposes, things like artistry and craftsmanship and simple beauty is from the Lord as a blessing? God created beauty so that mankind can see it. Why did He do so? It was a way to enhance and enrich our lives and make us as creatures reflect all the more on the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of our Creator. Beauty is His idea. He causes it to strike our eye and say, look at that, isn't that beautiful? So it is not a waste to have pleasing architecture. It is not vain to keep your yard looking nice or to have your house tastefully decorated. It is not idleness to make even your own self look beautiful. You all look beautiful. Don't make yourself look sexy. That's the world's approach. That's something that the Lord never expresses positively in Scripture. But make yourself look beautiful? Yeah. That fits with Genesis 2. It fits with Psalm 45. It fits with so many other parts of Scripture. But never should we use our beauty to exalt our own name, but always to point to the honor of the Lord our God. So this garden, this garden park is a a delightful place. It's got everything mankind needs, and it's got beauty to behold. And yet that's only the tip of the iceberg, for God also placed the garden in a very special location. We learn that in verse 8. He planted the garden in Eden in the east. And then in the verses 10 through 14, the Lord gets more specific with how this is laid out. And when you read those verses 10 through 14, you, you might think there's not much to learn here. It seems rather obscure. In those verses, we meet the names of rivers and lands that we're 
hardly ever heard of, um, the Pishon, the land of Havilah, the river Gihon, the land of Cush. And then there's the uh, apparently parenthetical comment about gold and bedellium and onyx. It all seems like kind of unnecessary detail, and we, we gloss over it. And even the scholars who try to work out the details and try to pinpoint, well, where, where could Eden have been? Like, where exactly geographically was it? They run stuck because some of those points of geography, we, we still don't know where they are. But if you look at the Lord's description here, not in the first place as a mapping out of where to find Eden, but rather as a description of the garden's strategic setup, then the details start to come alive. Look at verse 10, for example. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. A river flowed out of Eden into the garden to water it. We often think of Eden as synonymous with the garden, as, as if they're identical things. But this verse, together with verse 8, shows a distinction between the place called Eden and the garden which the Lord planted in its vicinity. The river which watered the garden came from outside the garden in Eden. It flowed from, uh, that once it came into the garden, it flowed out of the garden and separated into four other rivers, four headwaters. So the picture we are left with, if you could fly a drone over Eden and over the whole scene, was you, you would see Eden as a, a place where the river begins. Then you would see this garden park planted, uh, set up next to Eden, through which the river passes, and beyond that you would see the wide open world that is watered by the four rivers which break off from the one river. So we can't really understand the significance of the garden where Adam was placed until we appreciate the significance of the river, you see, the river which runs through it. What's the significance of that river? Well, it gives fresh water. And we all know that without fresh water, nothing can live. Plants, animals, people. Water keeps creatures alive. But now the water that gives life to the garden that God planted, it doesn't come from out of the garden itself. It comes from next door, Eden. And the implication of that seems to be clear, brothers and sisters, that in Eden, the source of the river which supplies life, the life-giving water, that is where the Lord dwells on the earth. He has, of course, His, His great glorious dwelling place in heaven, but the implication is that Eden was His earthly dwelling place. The garden which He planted next door to Eden and three times, is called three times in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 31, it is called the Garden of God. The Garden of God, because it was not just the beautiful home of man, but it was God's garden park next door to His dwelling place, a garden park in which He loved to walk. We know that from chapter 3, He would come in the cool of the day, and the, 
Adam and Eve recognized the sound of the Lord God coming into the garden, so the Lord God loved to go into that park and spend time with His children. The garden was the garden of delight because God would come there and fellowship with His children. We see that same setup coming back in Revelation 22. Maybe you'd like to turn with me there for a moment, the last chapter of the Bible. Chapter 22, John is shown a vision of the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, the place where both God and man will dwell once again. That that comes out in 21 verse 3, which we read. So in Genesis, you see, God starts out with a garden. In Revelation, it's a city, which shows a development in mankind subduing the earth and producing culture. But the essence of the arrangement is the same, 22 verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. You see that? The river of the water of life, we sang it from Psalm 46 too, it originates from the very throne of God. It's a symbolic way of the Lord saying, I'm the source of life. I'm going to give you this water, and from this water you can drink and you can live. That's how it was in Eden. That's how it's going to be in the new Jerusalem. The water, it proceeds outward to provide that sustenance to all the city's inhabitants. And then notice another parallel to the Garden of Eden in verse 2 of chapter 22. On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So the tree of life, which stood in the Garden of Eden at the beginning, will be there also in the end in the city, the new city, Jerusalem. The garden, you see, this garden that God planted, it's not just a piece of beautiful real estate you wish you could get your hands on. It's not just a, a pleasant place to live. It's not even just a paradise for man to enjoy, but it's, it's a place for God and man to mingle together, to meet together and visit together and walk together, both creator and creature, where they can commune together in a harmonious covenant. For that's something else that comes out in our text, Genesis 2. Maybe you noticed that as we moved into Genesis 2, Moses, the writer of the account, does something unusual, or at least unusual to this point in the account. He starts to use two names for the Creator. Starting in verse 4, he refers to the Creator as the Lord God. If you go back to chapter 1, all the way through chapter 1, he has only one name for the Creator. That's the name God. But here he adds the name Lord for capital letters. And I think most of our catechism students will know what those four capital letters are all about. 
those four capital letters, L-O-R-D, they translate a Hebrew word, the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh. I am who I am. Yahweh is the name that was later specifically revealed to Moses at the burning bush as God was fulfilling His ancient covenant promises to Abraham. While that name God is more of a title for the Creator, the name Yahweh, that's, that's God's personal name. It's like the name Jesus would be uh, our Savior's personal name in the, in the New Testament. Yahweh is God's personal name from the Old Testament times, the name which the Lord always associates with His covenant. Think of the preamble to the Ten Commandments. We hear it every Sunday. I am the Lord, four capital letters. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and then follows the ten words of the covenant. Covenant. That's the relationship that God established with His people where He made promises and they were to also make promises back. He would do certain things for His people and His people would do certain things for them. In fact, it's in Revelation chapter 21 in a, in a kind of a short form, it's already expressed there at the end of the Bible, I will be your God, you will be my people. That is the classic covenant formula. So back now to Genesis 2, when the inspired Moses brings in the name Yahweh, as man's creation is, is being described, he immediately draws our attention to God's covenant with his people. This is the covenant name. This is the covenant God speaking and doing and acting. If you read quickly through our text, you can have the feeling that God sort of established man with a, with a pretty good situation in the garden, and then kind of receded into the background, returning maybe to heaven. But brothers and sisters, God created man to live with Him in communion, in fellowship, in covenant. And like a groom who covenants with his bride in marriage, like a groom wants to live with his bride, so the Lord wants to live with His people. God dwells in Eden, and He brings man into close proximity to Himself in that garden park. The garden isn't strictly man's abode, and it most certainly isn't man's play place to do with what he wants. No, God is going to be going into that garden. He's going to commune with man. He's going to spend time with man. That's also why we see two distinct trees at the center of the garden. We'll come back to that on a different day two trees with commandments attached to them. The Lord, by His very act of creating man and then planting this garden and, and providing all that He needed in that garden and then giving commands, that is the Lord establishing a relationship with mankind, a relationship He later calls His covenant, a relationship of love, you see. When you pause and just take a step back, you start to see very, really clearly that it's the Creator's desire, it's God's desire to live with you and me. It's God's desire to love you, to walk with you, to have a close personal relationship with each and every one of you. 
Is that what you want? Is that what we want? To have a personal walk with God? Or do we just believe in God just because? Or do we believe in God because we don't want to end up in hell? Or do we believe in God just because we can't deny His existence? Or because we can't think of a better alternative? Brothers and sisters, God is inviting you and me to go deeper, to go to the heart of what life, the life He created, is all about. Life is more than staying alive. Eternal life is much more than never dying. Life is to know your Creator, to have a relationship with your covenant God where He speaks to you and you speak to Him and you enjoy a delightful friendship and interchange. Eden and the Garden of Eden are meaningless without the Lord's covenant of delight. So, beloved, don't just go through the motions of faith. But get to know your God. Get to love Him, to walk with Him day by day, reading His Word and speaking back to Him in your prayers. Get to know Him. We know that this was the Lord's intention in creation, that He wants the closest possible relationship with human beings we know that especially because later on, what did He do? God became a human being. God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, to take upon Himself true human nature. Why did He do that? So that the Son of God could repair the covenant we broke. So that our sin and rebellion could be removed from us. And the righteousness of God transferred to us, leaving us with the Lord, with Yahweh, to live together in peace and joy. Of course, God, your Creator, wants to walk with you. That's why He sent Jesus. So, beloved, fill your life with meaning. Fill it with meaning by taking up the Lord's covenant, embracing His promises, the covenant that He has renewed in the blood of His Son, and then devote yourself to knowing your God, to loving your God, to walking with your God. You know, when you read in Genesis 3 about how God would come into the, the garden in the cool of the day, and the picture is that the Lord would be walking with Adam and Eve talking with Adam and Eve, you think that would be pretty awesome, right? Would you have liked to have done that, walk with the Lord in the garden? Of course it would have been awesome. But there's something more awesome coming. Set your mind on a higher goal, for in Jesus, you and I, we can go beyond Eden. Jesus takes us from the garden where God came and God went. God came and God went. He takes us to the city of God. And notice in Revelation 22, God comes and He doesn't leave. 
He stays. The Father, Son, and Spirit, they will dwell with man forever in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 22, verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the new Jerusalem, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face. God will be there. Eden and the garden are one. We will see His face. That is the delight. That's what makes this life worth living. That is the joy that we hold out. So, brothers and sisters, today already, seek the face of your God. Go to Him in prayer through the blood of the Lamb and look forward to the, the sweetness of paradise restored. Paradise restored, yeah, but paradise made full and perfect. Amen.